The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. to be a child of God, isn't it? It's good to worship with other children of God. In our worship each week, we come to the place where we look at God's Word as instructional and authoritative for our lives. And right now, the particular part of God's Word that we're studying is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is the preacher. He's the teacher. And I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in chapter 7, then we're going to turn back to chapter 6. Here's what Jesus has been preaching in this famous sermon. He starts with the idea of happiness. And it's a, it's a wonderful introduction because everybody wants happiness. Everybody desires happiness. But what Jesus teaches is that happiness can only be attained in relationship with God and having the blessing of God. Today we live in a secular culture, and they even believe that you got a better chance of being happy outside of some kind of relationship with a, with a God who might be holy and righteous and just. And so they miss the whole purpose for their design and their creation. And so Jesus starts with that. He starts with the fact that you were created to have a relationship with the heavenly father. That's why Jesus came, that through his death on the cross, that might be accomplished in our lives. And we go to him, we trust in him, and we become one again with the father. And that's where happiness comes from. Now, in our worship of the heavenly father, there are some other pitfalls. There's some other traps for us. And Jesus begins talking about that. And one of the things that he does is he uses six Old Testament illustrations to talk about the fact that sin is not so much a matter of what people see on the outside, but sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is a heart condition. It's a heart disease, if you will. And only God can cure that. And so he begins that conversation. And then when we come to chapter six, he also makes it clear that righteousness is a matter of the heart. And so even as we can be hypocritical saying, I've never murdered, I've never adultery, but in our hearts we have uh, greed and lust and hatred, so too with righteousness we can, for instance, uh, illustration number one, we can give to the needs of the needy, but we can do that by saying, Hey, look at me at the same time. And so he's pointing out some other potential hypocrisies in our life. Last, last week we looked at giving to the needy. This week we look at praying and fasting. Well, actually, we're only going to have time to look at praying. And so uh, uh, I have written about a 10-page booklet here called Biblical Fasting. We would love for you to have it. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. You can get them at the hub if there are any left. We only made about 25 hard copies. If you would rather have an electronic copy, just leave us your email address. We will send it to you. Or if you'd like the hard copy, if there's any left, you can get that. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to praying. Is it possible that we pray And we pray with wrong motives, and we pray with wrong requests, and we pray with a self-centeredness. Is it possible that our praying, which should be an act of righteousness, actually turns into something 
hypocritical. Here's what Jesus says by way of introduction of the passage in chapter 6. I want us to look in chapter 7. Here's something Jesus says about praying in Matthew 7. Begin with me in verse 7. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Here, here's what I want to say to you just by way of introduction. God is waiting for you to pray. He has said to you, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. The problem for many of us is we have to admit we're a prayerless people. Knowing that I would uh, speak on this this Sunday, I've given some thought to the sins, not of our culture who are non-believers, but I've given some thought to the sins of the church in modern America today. What are the sins of Christendom in America in 2018? I, I think you could make a strong case that we've allowed the the brothel of the world in which we live to creep into the church. I think you could make a case that maybe one of the greatest sins in the church today is sexual immorality. I think you could make a case that one of the greatest sins of the church is the fact that we deceive one another with our words. And we're looking for loopholes in our contracts and we're looking for ways to sue one another and to catch one another or get out of all kinds of deals and agreements that we've made. We don't let our yay be yay and our nay be nay. I think you could make that case. But I think that I could make a strong case that the greatest sin of the church, of the people of God, is prayerlessness. James himself, when no doubt reflecting on Jesus' sermon, says you have not because you ask not. We're prayerless people. We live self-centered, self-oriented, narcissistic lives. We go through entire days, maybe weeks, maybe months, and we never really even think about God except for the 30 minutes that we're in church once a week or for some of you once a month. We, we really aren't giving ourselves to prayer. James would go on and he would say in James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not. And then when you do pray, literally saying one of our sins is we don't pray. And then when you do pray, his words are you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own lusts. We find that we're praying. We want God to align with us. Uh, When I was a boy growing up in church life, uh, I memorized Psalm 37, 4. It's a great, great verse. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And as I reflect on the verse, and the great thing about memorizing Scripture is you can think about it, you can bring it up, you can reflect on it. I begin to think on several occasions, he will give you the desires of your heart. Why, how could God give us a blank check? I will give you whatever you want. And the answer to the question is in the first part of the verse because it's a conditional statement. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then I will give you the desires of your heart. You know what God is saying? When you delight in what I delight in, I'll be happy to give you what you've asked for because you'll be asking for what I already want to give you. You see, the whole essence of prayer is not me trying to get God to align with me. 
It's me aligning with God. It's me bringing myself into him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he can give you the desires of your heart. And as we study prayer this morning, I want you to continue to think about that. Well, there's a second half of uh, this passage in Matthew 7. Not only is God waiting for us to pray, not only does he want us to pray, that he says to us, ask and seek and knock, but then he says in verse 9, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a rock? Or which of you, if he asks for a fish, you'd give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I want you to see, secondly, that prayer is based on a concept of a true concept of real fatherhood, of perfect fatherhood. Uh, Let me tell you why I think many Christians struggle in their prayer life. It's because when they say, Dear Heavenly Father, the idea of Father has been uh, messed up for them, for us, by our earthly fathers. Um, My earthly dad is a guy that loves Jesus. Uh, He raised me in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, uh, but he was an imperfect guy. My, My dad sinned. And as I began to grow up, I began to recognize those sins in his life as I began to recognize the sin in my own life. Maybe the father who raised you didn't raise you in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Maybe the father who raised you was abusive. Maybe he was abusive to you and your mother or the other kids in your family. And you struggle with the idea of calling God father. Could I suggest to you that the one who needs to see God differently. God doesn't need to be changed for you, but you need to change and see him for who he is. Don't use your earthly picture of a flawed father as a picture of a perfect heavenly father. Did you know that perfect heavenly father loves you with an unconditional love? Do you know he's never been abusive to you? Even though there have been things that you didn't understand that he did in his life, the scripture says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Even though you didn't understand that, God has loved you, he will love you, and he loved you so much that he sent his one and only son for you. He longs to have perfect relationship with you again. And so this is a part of who he is. Turn with me back in chapter 6. This is where we're going to see Jesus' teaching about prayer. And the first thing we see are five pitfalls that can turn your prayer life into hypocrisy. In fact, these pitfalls, uh, they not only turn prayer into uh, ritual superstition, because let's be honest, there are pagans who pray. There are people who pray to false gods. You can make prayer ritualized superstition, but it, it ultimately just turns it into hypocrisy. Here's what Jesus says beginning in verse 5. Now I'm in chapter 6. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues in the street corners so that they can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that's all the reward they get. They've received it. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And the Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, by the way, did you notice it's the same template as uh, when we talked about giving? Jesus never said, if you give. He said, when you give. 
Same template here. He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they'll be heard for their many repetitions, their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. So let's look at these, uh, let's look at these pitfalls that turn praying into ritualism or superstition and an ultimate hypocrisy. Pitfall number one, prayers are memorized, formalized, and ritualized. It's okay to memorize Scripture, but if all you do is pray a little memorized prayer and your, your brain's not connected and, and you, you're not even thinking about what you're saying, that's not what prayer was intended to be. Prayer is uh, prayer's heart language. Prayer is one heart, one soul, bearing itself to another. Prayer is, uh, the, really the word used sometimes in the Bible is, it's, it's communion. We use communion to talk about when we take the Lord's Supper. Communion, meaning where the word communication comes from. It's the intimacy of the soul whereby you unite with a perfect heavenly Father. And so to just, just to say a rote, memorized prayer that's a part of a, a liturgy or something is never what God intended. Pitfall number two, prayers are only said at certain times or occasions. Maybe you, you only pray like right before you eat or you pray before a special time or day. And, and we can fall into this trap in church life. We pray before a service. We pray before we take the offering. And they're just functionalized prayers. They don't really have any meaning if we don't watch out. Hypocrisy number three, long prayers are thought to be better prayers. You know, you just long, the longer you pray, you're going to somehow get to God. When I was a boy growing up in church, uh, short prayers were thought to be better prayers. Um, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the, of the last century, he would travel, and when they would travel and go to a new city and preach, they, they would ask local preachers to do like the beginning prayer. And on one occasion, this guy got up, and he, he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He was just praying. It was, it was going on way too long. And so D.L. Moody got up, and he said, while our brother finishes his prayer, turn in your hymn books to page 365. <laughs> you, you kind of, when you come to church, you kind of already need to be prayed up. God, Jesus said, God already knows what you have need of before you ever asked it. You say, well, if God already knows what I have need of, why do I even need to ask it? Because he wants communion with you. He wants intimacy with you. He wants fellowship with you. Pitfall number four, incessant repetition will get you what you want. Have you ever done that? You know, I want, I want, I want, I want. Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. It, it sounds like a spiritual spoiled brat at times. And then it's thought, it was thought that public prayer was more effective than private prayer. But Jesus says, go in your house, shut your door. Actually, what he's talking about is the front door is already shut. Then you go into a room, maybe what we used to call a prayer closet, and you shut that door. Any of you ever see War Room? See the movie War Room? Prayer closet? And you shut that door and you pray there. And God who sees even into the closets of your house and he sees even into the closets of your heart knows you and that's where he will meet you. Well, in this passage in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus doesn't just say, don't do it this way. He also says, this is the way you should do it. So in verse 9, he says, pray like this. 
What do we have here? Well, the passage we're about to read is probably very familiar to you. Many of you probably have it memorized. You know it as the Lord's Prayer. It's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's what everybody calls it that, so we refer to it that. It's really the disciples' prayer, or even better yet, it's the model prayer. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And so what we have here is instruction. This is what we're doing this morning with this prayer is exactly what we were supposed to do. It instructs us as to how to pray. What does that instruction say? It says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How then should we pray? Well, let's take a look. There are nine phrases in this prayer. It is a really, really short prayer. It's just packed with meaning. And each phrase speaks to the relationship that we have with God. Because remember, prayer is all about the relationship. You're, 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 not going, uh, uh, you're not going to knock on a door of a person that you don't know, and then they open the door, and you're asking for a favor. A, a person that doesn't know God, I guess, that, I guess they could think of prayer that way, but not for you and I. We're the children of God. Romans chapter 8 says we can call him Abba Father. We're adopted into the family. If he's the king of kings, we are prince and princesses. And so we come to God differently. We have a relationship with him. And every phrase of this prayer reflects who God is and who we are and how we align ourselves with him. Instead of asking him to align with us, how we align with him. And it begins with our Father in heaven And this indicates a father-child relationship. You see, I guess there's a sense in which, a creative sense, in which every person on the planet is a child of God. But in a biblical New Testament sense, the only ones who are children of God are those who have given their lives to him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who have have acknowledged their sinfulness, repented of that, and asked Jesus to be their Savior. And in that moment, we are reconciled with God. He becomes our true spiritual father. Remember uh, John chapter 8, the long discussion where the Israelites said, well, uh, God's our father. And he said, no, he said, if God were your father, you would do the things that he said. The devil's your father. That was Jesus speaking on that occasion. So we become the children of God. We call him Abba, Father. And so let's set aside the flaws of our earthly fathers, and let's begin to think about a perfect, perfect spiritual heavenly Father who makes no mistakes with you and who loves you. How much does he love you? He loves you like you're an only child. He loves you with an eternal love because he's omnipotent and omniscient and infinite. He can love the whole planet as if there's only one of us. It's an incredible love that he has for us. Of this heavenly father, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Uh, Let's admit something to ourselves. We don't use the word hallow 
very much in our everyday language, except when we get to this time of year, right? Because we're coming up to Halloween. Now, Halloween is a complete perversion of the word hallow. The word hallow means holy. And Halloween is the celebration of all the things that are unholy. And somehow, this uh, culture that we live in has become enamored with Halloween. Americans just love all of this that's unholy. Did you know that Americans will spend $300 million on Halloween costumes for their pets? Is that a messed up set of priorities? And so while America celebrates that which is not holy, we understand that God is holy and that I am his worshiper. Uh, Sometimes when I'm talking with folks, uh, if I just say to them, I'm a Christian, they're accustomed to that language. And some people think that they're Christians when they're not. They're like, well, I'm not Jewish and I'm not Muslim. I must be Christian. Um, So sometimes what I tell people is, I'm a Christ follower. Uh, It gives them pause. Maybe they haven't heard that phrase before. They're they're like, you're a Christ follower? But what if you used this word? What if you said, I'm a Christ worshiper? We have a holy God, and he's worthy of our worship, of our praise, of our thanksgiving. It's why we begin worship with our praise and our thanksgiving and our songs, our prayers that go to the Lord because he's a holy God and I am his worshiper. Well, Jesus comes now to the part of the prayer where he's asking for things. The first thing that he asks for is that your kingdom would come. And in this phrase, your kingdom come, he indicates that God is sovereign and I am his subject. Uh, You and I live uh, not in a kingdom, but in a democracy. We have an elected president. We don't have a monarchy. We don't have a king. And so sometimes Americans, we don't really get this. But but think it through just for a second. Our spiritual life isn't a democracy. It's not like God takes all the prayers of all the believers, and if 52% of us pray this way, and only 48% of us pray this way, the 52% get their answered prayer. Does anybody think that's what God does? That's not the way God works. He's perfect, and he's the king of kings. And so I am his subject. I, 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 don't, have to bring, uh, I don't have to bring my problems to him. He comes to me. He, he asks me. He says, come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What did we just read in, in Matthew 7? Ask you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, it'll be open to you. He's waiting. He wants you to pray. He already knows what you need. He's asking you to come in to intimacy, come into communion, and this is the King of kings. This is who he is. Jesus says, your kingdom come. The second part of the phrase is, your will be done. And this phrase shows that he's the master and I am the servant. Once again, uh, we don't live in a place that has slavery. And so we don't think about what it is to be a slave. And when we think of that, we always think of just the evil part of it. But this is a master who loves us. This is God who calls all the shots. He didn't save you to bring you into management. 
He doesn't need your counsel. Remember when Job was kind of getting a little haughty and he said, where were you when I created the world? I don't need your counsel. He's asking us to come in relationship with him. And we acknowledge that he is the master. Your will be done. And then Jesus moves to these things which are not broad strokes about the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He comes to the very easy, practical, everyday stuff. Give us this day our daily bread. And this acknowledges our ongoing earthly dependence upon God. Do you know this? Do you understand this? That you are completely dependent on a sovereign God? You you really don't have any control. Many of you are kind of control freaks. And I I guess I hate to be the one to break it to you, but in some ways I I think I'm glad to break it to you. you. You don't really control anything, do you? Life, the important things of life, are outside of your control. And all the people you're trying to control, if you keep that up, they will all run from you eventually. Let me show you how little you control. How many of you have ever been in a house or a household, friends, everybody got a cold or a flu around you? And you decided you, were not, you weren't going to get it. And so you had vitamin C and you had airborne and you had some other things and you were taking it. Maybe you even wore a mask there and you said to yourself, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get sick. And then you got sick. Ever happened to you? Or who among us can say, I'm not going to get cancer. I'm not going to get cancer. And that keeps you from getting cancer or heart disease. Who has control over the drunk that runs the red light and T-bones the car? Are you really in control of anything? You are completely dependent on God. Give us this day our daily bread. One of our problems is, is that we live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, which is a wonderful blessing. But we need to be reminded that without God, you still don't have your daily bread. God is the one who provides that for us. The next phrase is, forgive us our debts. And this acknowledges that he's the Savior and we're the sinners. Did you notice over there in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus used, a, in a sense, a funny phrase. The paragraph is about prayer. But he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father? You know what he's pointing out there? That mankind is not basically good. We're basically depraved. We're basically sinners. And we know that. And everybody knows that. Even people who say people are basically good, they lock their cars before they come into church. So everybody knows that, but nobody wants to admit it. Jesus says that. But he goes on and says, we can have our sins forgiven. So this phrase, forgive us our debts, acknowledges that Jesus is the Savior, and we are the sinners, and we are in desperate need for forgiveness. Who can forgive you your sins? You know, I, I really can't forgive you your sins. It's, it's why it's a silly uh, exercise that you would go to another person, and I could say to you, your sins are forgiven, sin no more. I, I don't have the ability to, to do that. I can say, if you sin against me, I can say, I forgive you. But to say, your sins are forgiven? David, when he writes the psalm, says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. 
So you need God to forgive you of your sins. You need God to be your Savior. Now, this part of the, this part of the prayer has two parts. Forgive us our debts, part A. As we forgive our debtors, part B. And this acknowledges that the creation, that's me, I'm the, I'm the created thing, I'm the creation, is to live in reflection of the Creator. So what did the Creator, what did Creator God do for me? Through His Son, Jesus Christ, by His grace and mercy, He gave me forgiveness. Is that grace and mercy that comes to me, is this supposed to stop with me? Is this supposed to end with me? That doesn't make any sense. His grace and mercy comes to me that it might do a work in me. What kind of work? A saving work, a redeeming work, a forgiving work. And that work happens in me that it might what? That it might flow through me to others. The idea that God forgives me, but I don't forgive you, well, how wrong is that? When you read this prayer, this model prayer, Jesus doesn't give commentary on our heavenly Father. He doesn't give commentary on holy is your name or your kingdom come, your will be done. He only gives commentary on one part of this prayer. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. This is the only part that Jesus comments on. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why do you think that out of this whole prayer, chuck full of meaning, that Jesus only gives commentary on this part? Is it possible that this is the part that we omit? Is this where we exempt ourselves? Let me tell you what happens in a lot of Christian lives. I've seen it so many times. Um, I'm just going to kind of give it to you in broad strokes. It goes like this. You, you find Jesus, you find the forgiveness of sins, and you experience that, and you have the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord just flows through you. And nothing better than a new Christian. New Christians are just full of, of bounce and bubble and new forgiveness, and they're so excited. And then you find a church. And you find a church where the word is preached and taught, and you're excited about that. And you find out the church has got life groups, and then you start to have accountability, and you have relationships, you have fellowship, and you're meeting other believers uh, for coffee and inviting them to your house, and they're going to, and then you, so that's even better. And you, you go to church, and the worship is great, and the preaching is awesome. Church is so good. I mean, that's, it's got a vision to reach the world, like Vision 3000. You're excited about that. But then... Aunt Ethel stabs you in the back again. Now, if you have an Aunt Ethel, I'm sorry, I just made that name up. Uh, but you know, you've got that person, that friend who has sinned against you and sinned against you, and then this is it. This is, this is the last time, and you say, I will never forgive her. I'll never forgive him. What happens to the Christian who does that? Well, let me tell you exactly what happens. You, you do that, and then you come to church the next week, and sermon's not quite so awesome. And the worship wasn't that good. And my life group uh, seems a little dry. And I start not to make time for my friends to meet my Christian friends for coffee or fellowship. And I start to skip church every now and then. When I pray, just, just hit the ceiling and come back. I, 
doesn't even seem like God cares about me. Is the problem the worship team and the preacher and the life group? What's the problem? The problem is that you pushed back from God, the God who forgave you of every sinful deed you've ever committed. You pushed back from that, and you stopped yourself cold. And I see it to Christian, I see it happen to Christians over and over and over again. Because we think, I can never forgive that guy. And it stops our prayers. It stops communion. It stops intimacy. It stops connection with the family of God. And so on this part, Jesus gives commentary. This is what ruins your prayers. Because the forgiveness of God that came to you, you've refused to let it flow through you. There's two more phrases here. The last two phrases are, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When he says, do not lead us into temptation, he's indicating our need for a divine guide. Years ago, I heard E.V. Hill preach, one of the great preachers of all times. He's in heaven now. If, if you want to go on YouTube, I think you can find some of his sermons. One of his great, uh, great sermons was the, uh, the funeral service of his wife. Uh, um, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was a black preacher that preached in, uh, in uh, Watts in Los Angeles and had an incredible international career. The, the day that I heard him preach, he was talking about a time that he went to Africa. And he said when he went to Africa, he said he saw this guy kind of stalking him and looking at him. And so the guy started coming from him and he got kind of scared, so he started running. When he started running, the guy started chasing him. So he ran down the street and he went around the corner uh, hoping to get away from him and looked and the guy came around the corner. And then when he realized when he went around the corner he was kind of actually on the edge of the city so he left the city and he went into this tall grass and the guy chased him into the tall grass on the other side of the grass was this little river bank and there were some rocks and he went across the rocks and he got to the other side of the river when he turned around the guy grabbed him and he thought he didn't know what was going to happen to him there and the guy said in kind of a, a kind of a british kenyan african accent he said sir you need a guide and he goes, no, I don't need a guide. And he goes, yes, you do. He goes, that corner that you came around right there? He goes, that's where hoodlums hang out. He goes, that's the worst corner. That's the worst part of Nairobi. He said, that tall grass that you ran through? He said, lions live in that tall grass. And he said, those rocks that you think you ran across? He said, those were crocodiles. You need a guide. You know what I would say to you this morning? You need a guide. You need the Holy Spirit to be your guide. There's trouble in life, isn't there? There's trouble all around us. It's a wicked world. It's a dark world. You need a guide. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this very last phrase shows that not only do we need a guide, but that sin has a consequence and we need a deliverer. Because there was a time when you didn't listen to the guide. There was a time when you went your own way. There was a time when you got yourself into trouble. And Jesus is your deliverer. No one else on earth can do this. Jesus and Jesus alone. I'd say it to you as loud as I could say it. I'd keep you longer if I thought it would better. I would just repeat it over and over. But I want to say to you, Jesus is your deliverer. We're out of time this morning, but did you know that the study of prayer in the Bible, I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours and hours studying it. Do you know in the New Testament, as we, as we get to this concept of prayer, it says that that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than all that you ask or imagine. 
That's what God wants to do with you. It's why I started with ask, seek, knock. That's what God wants to do in your life. Will you let him? I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. This morning, I'm really speaking to believers. If you've never given your life to Christ, that's where it all begins for you. Asking him to be your Lord and Savior. Then you enter into a relationship with God as Heavenly Father. And you can begin to pray to him. And if that's a decision you'd like to make this morning, before this day's over, I hope you'll come and see me or one of the pastors or, or, or the person who brought you. And let us help you make this greatest single decision in your life. But believers, I, I told you at the beginning of the hour, I'm afraid this might be one of the this might be one of the greatest sins of the American church today, our prayerlessness. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but how many of you, by the uplifted hand, would just simply confess? The Bible says we're to confess our sins one to another. How many of you would confess, my prayer life is not what it should be? And you would just raise your hand all over the room, all over the room. That confession is good. Confession is good for the soul. But more importantly... Our commitment is even more important. You could, you could say, well, my, my prayer life isn't what it should be, but then not make any changes. But I wonder this morning, is it possible that God's speaking to you about some changes? Maybe before you wake up and look to see who texted you. Maybe before you turn on the internet to see who emailed you. Maybe before you turn on the TV or the radio or before that first cup of coffee, maybe you need to talk to God. Maybe at the end of the day, you need to get the TV off earlier, get his word out, talk to God. Maybe you need to get with a believer in the middle of the day, and wherever you stop for coffee at City Brew or Starbucks, maybe the two of you can pray together. But is God speaking to you? One of the promises of prayer is where two or three are gathered together, I'll be there. And you, you know what two or three are together more than any others? Well, they're married couples and families. Maybe there needs to be a a prayer time in your family. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I want to make prayer a greater priority in my life? And you just raise your hand and say, that's, that's what I want to do all over the room. Father, you've seen our hands, you know our hearts, you know everything about us. We confess to you, there's times when we just, we live our lives, we think about ourselves, our own stuff, and we don't think about you, and we don't pray to you. And we don't come to you. And we ask your forgiveness for being your children, but not acting like it. And so today we recommit ourselves to a life of prayer, to, to follow this model that was given by Jesus himself. And that we might align ourselves with you. A holy God, an eternal God, a sovereign God, a perfect father. And that, Father, when we align ourselves with you, we know that you will give us our daily bread, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We trust that you will do that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.